John's Gospel, Gospel according to John. Actually, this is written in Greek. In the Greek manuscripts, it is actually not John's Gospel. These aren't different versions of something. It is the Gospel according to John, or the Gospel according to Matthew. And so this is what we call the fourth gospel, or the fourth canonical gospel, means in our canon of scripture. This weekend, we are beginning a brand new series in the fourth gospel. And except for a shorter series this summer called Inquiring Minds Want to Know, and except for Easter and Advent and stuff like that, we will be in the gospel of John all year. And we're looking forward. And of all the gospels, the four gospels in the New Testament, John has a singular focus on who Jesus is as the unique Son of God. The Messiah who declares in chapter 14, verse 6, words that are way out of step with our day of intolerance or tolerance. When Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's no ambiguity in the English text. There is no ambiguity in the Greek text. Jesus' words are said without embarrassment or hesitation that he is the unique and only Son of God. And so that is what we're going to be spending time is because that is a message that has always been combated by the evil one and has been combated by the world, that he is the unique Son of God. A number of years ago, the well-known actress and activist Jane Fonda, who's still alive, she's 86, was on a talk show. In fact, I went on this week and watched the clip, and it was the Dick Cavett show. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you remember who Dick Cavett is. But she was, and of all other guests, interestingly, he had on the Archbishop of Canterbury from England. So he has the Archbishop sitting there in his purple robe and his stuff, and then he has Jane Fonda, who is a very outspoken skeptic, and they were talking. And the archbishop was making the case for the uniqueness of Christ as the only savior. Jane Fonda was having nothing of and push, you know, pushing back and saying basically that he was narrow-minded and all religions are fine and this and that. And finally, the archbishop turns to her. In fact, you can, you can watch this on uh, Twitter or X, sorry. You can, uh, so he turns to her and he says, is Jesus Christ, he said the question is this, is Jesus Christ the true final, perfect revelation of God for mankind? I mean, very clear question. And she says, well, for some people, and wisely and very biblically, the archbishop turned to her and said, he either is or he's not. And there, the conversation sort of died down. Because that is the case. You can't have it both ways. I shared last service. Remember, Aristotle did not invent the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction is embedded in the very nature of who God is. Something can't be both true and not true in the same way, same place, at the same time. And he either is or he is not, and that's John's case. And what John wants to tell us is Jesus is the only Savior, the only Messiah, the only path to God, true Son of God, way, truth, and life. And there is not the least bit of embarrassment in John, not the least bit of hesitation in John in declaring this as absolute truth. So we're going to begin our series this way. We're going to start with an overview, some couple fast facts about John's gospel. Some of us know this gospel very well. Some of us here do not. And we forget, the two groups sort of forget about each other. And so, for instance, Bible Study Fellowship this year is going through John, and some of you are in that, and some of you have been in John for years. But there are people here this morning who have never read this gospel and frankly don't know much about it at all. 
And so just to help make sure we're all on the same page, and because review is so healthy for the soul and mind, we're going to look at two things under this first point. Just two things. Authorship and John's strategy. Now, there's a lot more we can cover. One of the commentaries I will be recommending by D.A. Carson has 100 pages of introduction material. So I'm going to spare that. Becky just finished wading through all of that. She's reading his commentary for the series. I'm just going to concentrate on two things. First of all, who wrote the fourth gospel? You may not know it, but all four gospels we have in our New Testament are anonymous. And so we have to figure out from evidence, historically, linguistically, geographically, who wrote these. Now, some of you have heard of the Gnostic gospels. Let me put a slide up just to remind you what these are. These were made famous in the Da Vinci Code movie and the Da Vinci Code series. Uh, the Gnostic Gospels that many have heard of in our day are second century forgeries, counterfeits. They are written in Coptic, that is Greek text, but it's the Egyptian language. And they were found in Egypt. Most of them were found in a stash in the 1940s. And it's a treasure trove of information. They are fascinating, but there's not the least hint that they're inspired scripture. This is not a Gnostic. There are a lot, in other words, there are a number of Gospels besides just the foreign New Testament. And so the Gnostic Gospels, just make sure you don't get them confused with what John is doing. And there are also several Johns in the New Testament. So the question is, is this the Apostle John who wrote this? And the evidence is overwhelming. And it has been. It's interesting to see scholarship shift over the years. Right now, in the academy for the most part, especially liberal seminaries, the, 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 the preponderance is against believing that John is the author. I read a New Testament scholar this week who's somewhat conservative, and he said he thinks Lazarus wrote it. I thought, well, I've never heard that before. Uh, but the evidence is pretty clear, the Apostle John, and that's been the consensus of the church. You need to know that. Whether you buy into it or not, that has been the dominant consensus of church history for 2,000 years. Let me give you a couple other pieces of key evidence that John is the author of the fourth gospel, the Apostle John. One, the author is very clearly an eyewitness. When you look carefully at his language and even details that he mentions, it's very clear you're, you're, you're talking, uh, listening to an eyewitness. Very clear. Secondly, the author clearly not only is an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, when you look at the final chapters, whoever wrote this was there at the arrest and crucifixion. And he was there at the at not only crucifixion, but at the resurrection because of the minuteness of detail that is clearly evident. Another piece of evidence, the early church fathers were almost unanimous that the apostle John was the author. All the way back to Irenaeus, who was a bishop in what is today France, or Tertullian in North Africa, writing in just the first couple centuries. They all said, well, of course, it's, we all know. And the tradition goes all the way back to the apostles that John wrote this. And interestingly... Here's another piece of evidence. Scholars have pointed this out. In the first three Gospels, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, let me put a reminder up. You'll hear that phrase here. Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why are they called that? Well, since the 1780s, the first three Gospels have been called this because they are so similar in structure and in content and in wording. A synopsis comes from the Greek. And so they, they have very similar flow, structure, and the same information rearranged and packaged a little bit differently under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But they're very similar. John is very different, which has led scholarship over the years to either really like it or really not like it. But here are some of the differences. So 
of that, let me, let me say, it's interesting that in the first three Gospels, the Apostle John is mentioned. In the fourth Gospel, he is not mentioned, which would lend credibility that he actually himself is the author. One other fact before I dive into a strategy here. Uh, the oldest fragment we have of any New Testament books, because some people ask, fairly, you know, do we have any evidence that this book is ancient? was really written back in the first century or so. Well, the oldest scrap, fragment we have of any New Testament book is of the Gospel of John. It's a small fragment of chapter 18. It fits on a credit card. It's in a museum in Manchester, England. But it's from John 18. It was found in Egypt and dates to about 130 AD, which means that already by 130 AD, the Gospel of John was circulating so widely, it was already down in Egypt. And so it shows us, John, indeed, this Gospel is very ancient and high probability that it was written by the Apostle John. And here's why it's not just an academic squabble. If John, one of the disciples, actually wrote this Gospel, we have not only an eyewitness, but one of the inner ring of Jesus' followers. There was three men around Jesus that were in his inner ring, they would know better than anyone what he said and what he did. And so it would give great credibility. Now, let's talk about John's strategy. As we noted, John is among the four gospel accounts, but he's got a different focus. Let me give a slide here just to remind. About 90% of what John writes is unique to his gospel alone. About 90%. So for example, John has no parables. There's no exorcisms in John. And he does not list the 12 apostles like the three synoptic gospels do. There's also no record of a number of things in Jesus' life. There's no record of his birth, his baptism, his temptation. There's no record of uh, the transfiguration or the ascension. John, however, includes a number of things you can't find in the synoptic gospels. Like what? Well, the discussion with Nicodemus in chapter 3. The only reason we know about that conversation is the gospel of John. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, water into wine, or the famous, very famous woman at the well story in Samaria. Only John mentions these things. John also uses a lot of opposite word plays, these polar opposite, like light, dark, uh, above, below, flesh, spirit. John very much mimics wisdom literature <clears throat> by these polarities in verbal word plays. Um, but his primary structure, let's get to that, is that John organizes his gospel around seven signs. The synoptic gospels don't do this. John chose seven miracles, and he packaged his gospel around those seven miracles, and he tells us what he's doing. Now, it's a, just a quick reminder. This doesn't mean there's any contradictions between John and the synoptic gospels. They're just very different in focus. And remember, all four Gospels are passionate about presenting Jesus as Messiah, the only Son of God, the only way to God. So that's where there is total agreement. But John, here's where John's unique. John alone of the four Gospels gives us a purpose statement. Some of you know of this, some of you do not. We're going to read it this morning, and we're going to come back to it over and over in this series. Because John, you know, when you read a book, I love to read books, I like when somebody tells me up front or at the end or somewhere, here's where I'm writing, here's my worldview, here's my presuppositions, and here's, my, here's what I hope to, to uh, do as I write this book. Here's what I hope to convince you of. 
Some authors are less than candid about that. John is very open about it. And so if you go to the end of the book, chapter 20, and again, some of you know these last two verses of, John, of chapter 20 well, but some of you do not. We're going to keep coming back to them because they are so unique among the four Gospels. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. The only time in any Gospel in the New Testament where we are given the purpose statement, why they wrote. John chapter 20, verse 30. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, or these are included, the ones John included, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Look at the word there, believe, that you may believe. Some of you know the New Testament was not written in English or Spanish or French. It was written in Koine Greek. That's a very common verb in Greek, pastuo, just simply translates, I believe. It's interesting. John uses this verb almost 100 times in his 21 chapters, almost twice as much as the synoptic gospels. Now, here's the unfortunate part. The unfortunate part is... In English, when, and this is part of the, 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 the difficulty of translation. In English, when you hear the, the verb, I believe, it generally refers to, it often means little more than, yes, I intellectually uh, hear what you're saying, or I agree with what you're saying, or intellectual assent, or intellectual affirmation of something. Uh, like, you know, do you believe in uh, Bigfoot? <laughs> do you believe in climate change? Do you believe in recycling or UFOs or aliens or creation or evolution? You're asking somebody, do you, do you mentally agree with this? And the reality is this. In the New Testament, pistuo does mean intellectual agreement. I mean, it is there. But it means more than that. When you see the, how the word is used in the New Testament, a fair translation of this verb would also be I surrender. I'm all in. I'm all there. I submit. I trust. And then you begin to get the fuller feeling and, and really the essence of what this word means. And that's why in the New Testament, it's not just left to, do I agree with these facts? Okay, okay Christian, you have to agree with those facts. We are saved by faith alone. But the evidence that the writers of the New Testament and Jesus come back to over and over and over is, is there life change that demonstrates you really believe this? And that's why Jesus said, whoever loves me, he said, will obey me. He said it this way, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, they will obey my teaching. So ultimately, it doesn't matter if we prayed some prayer in when we were five years old, the issue is, today, am I believing Jesus is Messiah and Lord? Am I all in? And is there evidence that I'm obeying Christ? Jesus is very clear. It's the person who follows him no matter the cost, who obeys his commandments no matter the consequences, and who submits to his authority. That is the one who has been born from above. All right, let's go to now the second part this morning. What is it that John then tells us about Jesus? The short answer is a lot. 
Okay, I can't cover it all this morning. I can't even cover probably all of it in this series. However, there are key things that rise to the surface that John will talk about over and over and over. And so this morning, we're going to look at six of those and land the plane on time, fret not, but six of the most important facts that John wants you and I to be aware of, in fact, any reader of this gospel in history to be aware of as they encounter it. And all of these go back to his purpose statement. So let me say it. Remember, what was the purpose? Young people, kids, what was the purpose statement? I've written these things to you so that, what? You might believe Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in him and that by believing you may have life through his name. So if what we believe about Jesus is such a big deal and so important, let's make sure we hear what John, and, and whether you're a believer or not, I know a lot of us here know Christ. I know some of us here are not Christians. But at least let's give John a hearing and let's hear what he has to say because this is the gospel and this is what changes lives. I was talking to somebody after the first service today and I said, remind me how you were saved. How'd you get saved? And the gentleman said, oh, it's fascinating. He said, I didn't grow up going to church and I got into a situation in my life that was, things were not going well a number of years ago and he said, I, I, uh, I started attending a church. And he said, I heard the gospel very clearly. And then he said, you know, through a couple other things. And then he said, one day in the parking lot, in a parking lot, he said, I pulled over and I just began to weep uncontrollably over my sin. And I repented and trusted Christ as Savior. That is what John is aiming at. Because some people can hear the gospel and go, eh, whatever. It's one of many ways. Maybe it's true for you, not true for me. The person who says, I want that, I'm all in. That is what John is aiming to do without apology. So John tells us six important facts about Jesus. Number one, first thing he tells us and announces and declares, Jesus is the word. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, if you look at the synoptic gospels, Mark begins with John the Baptist. That's how he starts his gospel. Luke begins with the parents of John the Baptist. Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. John goes back to Genesis and echoes the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning. And then John calls Jesus here. We know verse 1, even though his name isn't there. That's who he's talking about. He labels him the word. Now, again, Bible's not written in English, so you push behind. What's, what, is the tr what is the word being translated here as word? And it is a Greek word, very common Greek word, logos. In fact, we kind of use it occasionally in English for different things. There's logos churches, there's logos ministries, there's all kinds of things. What is that word? Even though we translate it word and get a little confusing. It's a very common Greek word, and you can translate it a number of different ways. Logic. Reason, study, report, there's all sorts of, in fact, here's an interesting little sideline. The NIV, I preach out of the New American Standard, I mean the New, the New International Version, or if you go to the NASB, New American Standard, or the ESV, a lot of you use the English Standard Version. When it comes to the word logos, both the NIV and the ESV, whenever they encounter that word in the New Testament, translate it with at least 
12 to 17 different English words. So it is a, every word, that's why you don't just plug in, when you're doing, tra- if you know more than one language, you know this, you don't just plug in words. You have to look at context, linguistic frame of reference, and you have to pick accordingly. So this is, this is a very important word. Jesus is called the logos, the word. This was a very common word, by the way, in Greek philosophy. So Plato, Aristotle, all those would have commonly referred to the logos. They referred to it as kind of the divine wisdom of the universe. They were not believers so much, especially Aristotle was an atheist, so he didn't really believe in a personal God, but he believed in this kind of rational principle of the universe, and they would use this word logos. But more than Greek thought, this word actually has deep roots in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, especially wisdom literature. Let me just read you a couple verses to give you an idea what John was tapping into here, because he's doing more than just tapping into Plato or Aristotle. He is tapping into the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So, for example, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent forth his word and healed them. Hundreds of times we read in the Bible, the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to the prophets. Or Isaiah 55, 11. The word of the Lord delivers God's people. So that's the background of Logos. Let me tell you a couple, a couple other things. Number one, uh, John not only applies this Greek word to Jesus, that would have been not surprising to his audience. But then he goes on to say two things that would have been very surprising to a first century audience, especially ones that had a Greek or Roman background culturally. And that is this. John tells us the Logos was God and became flesh. And it's the second one that would have been a real jolt to a first century Mediterranean audience. So first he tells us the word was God in the beginning, verse one. The word was with God and the word was God. Even Greek philosophers never said that. They just said it was the rational principle of the universe, not that it was the personal God. But then verse 14, here's where John would have lost everybody. The word became flesh, sarks. And made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, why would that have been such a shock? Because of this. To a Greek mind, to a Roman mind, they thought in a dualistic way, very simply this. If something is spiritual and invisible, it's good. If something can be seen or touched and is material and fleshly, it's evil. So what we can see and touch, evil. That which is spiritual and invisible, good. And to say to that kind of a frame of reference, well, God became human flesh. Absolutely, utterly taboo. In fact, N.T. Wright, one of the best New Testament scholars around today, said in his big book on the resurrection of the Son of God, he said, the concept of God becoming a human being or a human body uh, getting up from the dead and walking around, he said, absolutely unheard of resurrection, incarnation, these are not categories of a Greek and Roman mind. And yet, here's John saying, that's exactly what is going on. So that would have been a huge jolt. Secondly, we're going to take these kind of in the order of which John presents them. So Jesus is the word. Secondly, John wants to make sure you understand Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now here's, here's the bad, I just preached a whole sermon on this about a month ago, and so I'm going to condense the whole sermon into two minutes here. And 
I want you to turn to verses 35 and 36 because John the Baptist declares this fact about Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God. But before I read that, let me just set the stage. The Bible announces we're sinners from the moment of conception and that we're lawbreakers and we're rebels, moral rebels at heart. Paul writes in Romans 3, all, all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. Every single human being. And to do that, he quotes a number of psalms to establish that. And then the Bible announces our greatest need, not our greatest felt need, our greatest need is forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Even if you don't feel it, even if you have no sense of that, the Bible said that is hands down our greatest need. In the Old Testament, what did God do to provide a means for forgiveness? He told them to offer animal sacrifices, a bull, a pigeon, a goat, a lamb, depending on their income, their situation. But the New Testament tells us this, that the animal blood was a band-aid. It never really atoned for sin. It was just a temporary band-aid. It was a temporary substitute, that life, for the sinner's life. But it really didn't fix the sin problem. And that's where the New Testament said a more perfect sacrifice is needed. And so therefore, when Jesus comes on the scene, and he's talking to Jews who are very familiar with the sacrifice of lambs, especially during Passover, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, tell you something, there is the Lamb of God. Verses 35 and 36. The next day Jesus was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw, John was there with, uh, again with the disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Meaning, here finally is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus came, fulfilled the law of God. A lot of people overlook that. It's called the active obedience of Christ. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Then offered his life in place of the sinner who would believe as an atoning sacrifice to pay what we could never pay. And no wonder the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 calls Jesus something very interesting. Our Passover lamb. Linking the ministry of Christ all the way back to the book of Exodus and the Passover. And what it means today is this. And that's what John's telling us here. Anybody who trusts in Jesus, young or old alike, who's still alive and breathing, will be protected in, from the coming judgment when the angel of death passes over them. Why? Because back in Exodus, this all goes back to Passover. In Exodus, in the final plague, God sent out the angel of death to kill the firstborn of every family and all their animals, the firstborn of all animals. But it was said by God, when I come to the house, if there's lamb's blood smeared on the doorframe, the angel of death will do what? Pass over. Just a simple verb. Pass over that house. That's the origin of Passover. No surprise then that Paul would call Jesus our Passover lamb. Any who flee to him and seek forgiveness on judgment day. I mean, we'll talk about a glorious truth. Judgment will pass over that individual and they will not be condemned. You can see why this is a big deal. So he is the lamb of God. Thirdly, Jesus is the son of man. 
Go to the end of chapter one. Here we get a completely different title. John chapter one, verse 50 and 51. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than this. Hang on, he says. He then added, truly, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on, what? Son of man. Now, here's the question. What is up with that title? Well, first of all, it's a title Jesus uses more than anything else. That's his go-to title for himself. And he always uses it in third person, but he uses it in all four Gospels. And so the obvious question is, well, what is it? Ezekiel used it over 90 times in his book, but he used it in a different way, talking about himself. Where Jesus is reaching is Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel 7, mimicking the wording here, the Son of Man, hear this, is a divine warrior savior who will appear at the end of times to rule the nations. Talk about, talk about a claim. Imagine a neighbor of yours making that claim. You'd probably put a for sale sign up and get out of the neighborhood. Right? I mean, this is either true or not. Normal people don't go you know, walk around saying this kind of stuff. Nonetheless, the book of John is filled with these kind of extreme claims from Jesus. And his favorite title for himself Son of man. Let me show you one other passage which used, chapter 5. Turn over there, verses 26 to 29. And again, imagine somebody living next door to you saying this about themselves. That's why you, you, you have to see how extreme this stuff is. John 5, 26 to 29. Again, Jesus is speaking. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's talking about himself. And he, Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to judge because, why? What's it say? What's the text say? He is the Son of Man. Jesus, again, his default phrase. He's talking that he is the Son of Man. He's claiming to be the Son of Man. And then he goes on, don't be amazed at this. The time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He's talking about himself. And will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to, lie, rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus is the Son of Man, this heavenly, divine warrior Savior who will show up at the end of time to rule the nations. And Jesus is making the claim, that's him. He's saying, that's, that's me. All right, the fourth claim. The fourth thing John tells us about Jesus, and let me preface this one. This one is probably the most shocking of all of them, at least to a first century Jew. Jesus comes on the scene, John chapter eight, if you want to turn there, because we're going to read a couple verses there. John chapter eight, and Jesus makes this claim. He says, I am and he stops. Now, that's awkward English. He says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham even existed, because they were chastising him because he said Abraham referred to him, and you know, they said, you're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham know about you? He lived, you know, hundreds, hundreds of years ago. And Jesus looked right at these religious leaders in John chapter 8 and said, you know what? Before Abraham even existed, and then he says this phrase in Greek, I am. Now, to us, that's awkward English, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything to an American 
doesn't familiar, is not familiar with the Bible. However, if you're a first century Jew and you knew your Hebrew Bible, this is code, it's not even code, it's a direct claim to be God Almighty. Why do I say that? Because back in the book of Exodus chapter three, Big Mo, y'all know Moses, he's talking to a bush that's on fire. And the bush is telling him stuff to do. I don't know what you do if you bush was talking to you. And then the bush says, I want you to go and convey this message. And Moses says, right. And who am I to say sent me? And what's God say through the bush? You tell the people, I am has sent you. Now that's not the divine name. God's divine name is Yahweh. But the two are linguistically related. They have the same root. I am. It's related to Yahweh. So all through Jewish history, Anybody who hears the phrase, I am, knows immediately, you're talking about the Yahweh of the Old Testament. You're talking about God Almighty. And now Jesus, now fast forward to the New Testament, he comes on the scene, religious leaders are attacking him, and he looks right in the eye and he says, I tell you what, before Abraham was even around, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, I am. And you know exactly the kind of bomb that was. Right in front of them, he said, I am Yahweh in human flesh. And if you have any doubt that that's how they understood him, look at verse 59 of chapter 8. Last verse, chapter 8. There is no doubt this is exactly how they understood his claim. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because that's what the law required for blasphemy. That's what the law required for blasphemy. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple. It wasn't his time yet. Now, beloved, kids, young people, adults, hear this for just a second. It is important to grasp what John is doing here, okay? Don't miss this. When Jesus claims to be son of man, when he claims to be I am, let's just be fair. These are extreme claims, Open declarations of a human being walking around saying, I am the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. I will judge the nations. I will come on the clouds of glory. I will resurrect people from the dead. I mean, normal people don't walk around saying this kind of stuff. And so here's the, here's the bottom line, back to the archbishop and Jane Fonda and her theology. Either is or he's not. If he is not telling the truth, then he is committing the same treacherous sin as Satan in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, there's a short passage that describes the original rebellion of Satan when he was thrown out of heaven. And do you know one of his greatest sins when he did that? It was pride. Five times he said, I will, I will, I will. And one of them was, I will be like the most high. And here's Jesus claiming to be the most high. So he is either committing the same blasphemous sin Satan did, or he's telling the truth. But that is why they picked up stones to stone him, because in their eyes, and from their perspective, that makes sense, they saw this as absolute blasphemy. John wants you to know it's not blasphemy. This is the great I am and your eternal destiny. Don't miss this. 
John's gospel screams out, your eternal destiny depends on what you think about Jesus. Now, it depends on more. You have to surrender to it and joyfully submit to it, but it means nothing less than that. Because if you go back a little further in John 8 to verse 24, I don't know how you could make it a whole lot clearer. And this is tied right back to the whole concept of I am. But John 8, 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I told you, you would die in your sins. There's only two ways to die. Do you know that? You can die in the Lord, you can die in, the sin, in your sin. You die in the Lord, you go to heaven. You die in your sins, you go to hell. I told you you would die in your sins, but notice the if part here. If you do not believe what? What does it say? What's the text say? If you do not believe, and the, and the original Greek doesn't even have the word he there. It just says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's why this is such a big deal, what you believe. about Any cult or group that denies Jesus is God Almighty in human flesh is by definition blasphemous and occult because it attacks the very core of the identity of Christ. Fifthly, John tells us Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Go to John chapter 14. Again, some of you know this chapter well. Some of you have never read it. So let me just summarize very quickly. John wants you to know there is no other Savior there is no other way. This is the only way. John 14, verses 5 to 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Translation, I'm the only Savior I'm the only way to heaven. I'm the only way to eternal life. I'm the only hope for sinners. Now, in today's world, he just violated the chief sin, which is intolerance. <laughs> right? That wasn't a factor. He, if this is true, it's actually then doing us a favor and saying there is a way left to God, and here it is. There is only one way. And it's offensive. Jane Fonda was clearly all ruffled about it, and it continues to ruffle people. It has for... 2,000 years, ever since Jesus claimed it, he almost was killed over that claim. And it's still a major sticking point today. When I was in uh, my home church growing up, I did an internship as I was heading towards ministry. And somewhere towards the end of my college career, I did an internship there, and I was doing a series with the youth group. I was teaching it on the cults. So we were going through some of the world religions and some of the false cults. And a local owner of a dude ranch in the area heard about the series. And so he invited me to lunch. There ain't no free lunch. I'll tell you that. So <laughs> you get an idea where this is going. So we're, we're there at lunch and, you know, he was whining. And, and I told the first service, and this is true, he came out looking like Colonel Sanders. Uh, he, he was playing the part right to the hill. He had on the white stuff and the white straw hat and the cane. I mean, he looked just like you know, on the side of the chicken bucket. And, and he, he appeared very jovial and gentle at first. And so we're eating and we're going back and forth. And so then he brings up my class that I'm teaching at our church. And he'd heard that I was critiquing some of the world's religions and this and that. And, he, and then finally he pushes his chair back, stands up, 
He's an older gentleman. And he points his finger right in my face. I'm sitting there. And he said, young man. Had my attention. I said, yeah, what? He said, you had better learn to quit criticizing other people's religions. He said, I put all religions together. And then he swore. And he said, it's, it's a really good religion. Man, that sort of was the end of lunch. This ruffles people. In a world that wants to say, oh yeah, you can add Jesus to the shelf of saviors. He's a savior. He's a way. Remember reading Stanley Jones, a great missionary to India, and the Brahmins told him, if you present Jesus as a way, India will eat from your hand. But if you insist on saying he's the way, nobody's going to listen to you. That is the claim of Jesus. He is the only way to eternal life. And finally, the sixth claim that Jesus wants, I mean, that John wants to make sure you understand about Jesus, chapter 20, is this. He's not just the great I am and the son of man, but he came to do something. He is the crucified, resurrected son of God. As John finishes his gospel, chapter 19, 20, 21, he is giving us very clearly an eyewitness account of the crucifixion and atoning death of Jesus, chapter 19. Then in chapter 20, he gives us a verified eyewitness account of the resurrection from the dead of Jesus. So I want to read just verses 26 to 29. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I think if somebody just showed up suddenly in your house, you'd need a little bit of peace spoken over you. <laughs> and then he said to Thomas, the great doubter, he said, come here, put your finger here in my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. He is the resurrected son of God. Crucified for the sins of the world, resurrected from the dead. And this is quite honestly, again, the rub when it comes to, say, Islam. I've had the privilege to meet a number of imams over the years. Becky and I have even been in their homes overnight in, in Malaysia. Found them to be very gracious, very kind. And if I had an imam up here today, a Muslim imam, he would tell you. To be fair, he would say, Jesus was one of our prophets. He was a great man, but he is not the son of God. Why would he say that? Because it's very clear in the Quran. For example, chapter 9, Surah 9, verse 30. It doesn't get any clearer. The Christians say Jesus is the Son of God. These are blasphemies uttered by their mouths. So the official position of Islam, Sunni, Sufi, Shiite, or any of the other branches, is that Jesus is a prophet. He is not the unique son of God. And yet John here is saying, no, 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 no. He is the unique heavenly son of God. And I wrote all of this. Verse 31. What's chapter 20, verse 31? Which actually brings us to our summons. Why is John spending so much ink on all of this? These are written that you might believe, be all in, that Jesus is Messiah, son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Again, this is more than just decision. It's every bit of very good decision, very powerful decision. It is submission to a new master. 
It is submission to a new authority. It's saying, I'm all in. Like the gentleman I talked to at the first service when he pulled in that parking lot and just wept. He's all in. He, was, he, you know, he said, I, just, I cried out to God. I'm done with my agenda. I'm done with my sin. I want Christ as Savior. Surrender. And again, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, here's how you'll know. They will obey my teaching. And let me just add as we close. This also means evangelizing your children and your grandkids. You are the primary evangelist, especially of your children. And that's more than just saying, you know, ask Jesus in your heart. It's not about a prayer or the words of a prayer. It is about helping our children come to grips with who Christ is, what his commands and demands are, presenting him as the great savior, and then urging our children to repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then the importance of obedience and following through, proving ourselves to be a disciple. That is what John wants. And Lord willing, my prayer is, through this series, true believers will be strengthened. And we will see a number of people this year come to faith in Christ, get baptized, and become new members of the kingdom of God. A couple commentaries. Every time we start a new series, we recommend three levels of commentary. I'm going to strongly encourage you to get one of these. We've made some of these available to our community group leaders. We always recommend more of a popular level one. R.C. Sproul's John is a great one. It's the one I'm actually reading this series. I'm, re- I'm consulting lots of commentaries, but I'm actually reading that one whole. That's the shortest of the three. And it's, it's, it's Sproul's sermons on the Gospel of John just put into print. The middle one, kind of in between, uh, difficulty level by D.A. Carson, Gospel According to John in the Pillars series. Actually, Becky is reading this one. D.A. Carson, one of the finest New Testament scholars on the planet. He, along with Tim Keller, founded the Gospel Coalition. And he, and he did his doctoral work at Cambridge in Gospel of John literature. So he is primo. And then the advanced one, if you're looking for something more advanced, by Edward Clink, the exegetical commentary on the New Testament Gospel of John. All of these are in our church library. I would encourage you, though, to buy one of these. And make it your companion this year as we walk through this great gospel together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you there are four witnesses in the New Testament to the life of Christ. And that they're not second or third century forgeries and counterfeits. But they're written, in John's case, by an eyewitness. May this be compelling. May it encourage those who are born again and may it summon to faith those who are not. May we see conversions this year and new baptisms as people step out and follow Christ as their Savior in his name.